0: Chapter 4, Part 3 of Sovereignty of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. Chapter 4, Part 3 We turn now to consider the sovereignty of God the Holy Spirit in salvation since the holy spirit is one of the three persons in the blessed trinity it necessarily follows that he is in full sympathy with the will and design of the other persons of the godhead the eternal purpose of the father in election the limited design in the death of the son and the restricted scope of the holy spirit's operations are in perfect accord. If the Father chose certain ones before the foundation of the world and gave them to his Son, and if it was for them that Christ gave himself a ransom, then the Holy Spirit is not now working to bring the world to Christ. The mission of the Holy Spirit in the world today is to apply the benefits of christ's redemptive sacrifice the question which is now to engage us is not the extent of the holy spirit's power on that point there can be no doubt it is infinite but what we shall seek to show is that his power and operations are directed by divine wisdom and sovereignty we have just said that the power and operations of the Holy Spirit are directed by divine wisdom and indisputable sovereignty. In proof of this assertion, we appeal first to our Lord's words to Nicodemus in John 3, 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the spirit a comparison is here drawn between the wind and the spirit the comparison is a double one first both are sovereign in their actions and second both are mysterious in their operations the comparison is pointed out in the word so the first point of analogy is seen in the words where it listeth, or pleaseth. The second is found in the words, Canst not tell. With the second point of analogy, we are not now concerned, but upon the first, we would comment further. The wind bloweth, where it pleaseth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. The wind is an element which man can neither harness nor hinder the wind neither consults man's pleasure nor can it be regulated by his devices so it is with the spirit the wind blows when it pleases where it pleases as it pleases so it is with the spirit the wind is regulated by divine wisdom yet so far as man is concerned it is absolutely sovereign in its operations So it is with the Spirit. Sometimes the wind blows so softly it scarcely rustles a leaf. At other times it blows so loudly that its roar can be heard for miles. So it is in the matter of the new birth. With some, the Holy Spirit deals so gently that his work is imperceptible to human onlookers. With others, His action is so powerful, radical, revolutionary, that his operations are patent to many. Sometimes the wind is purely local in its reach, at other times widespread in its scope. So it is with the spirit. Today he acts on one or two souls. Tomorrow he may, as at Pentecost, prick in the heart a whole multitude but whether he works on few or many, he consults not man. He acts as he pleases. The new birth is due to the sovereign will of the Spirit. Each of the three persons in the Blessed Trinity is concerned with our salvation. With the Father, it is predestination. With the Son, propitiation. With the Spirit, REGENERATION The Father chose us, the Son died for us, the Spirit quickens us. The Father was concerned about us, the Son shed His blood for us, the Spirit performs His work within us. What the one did was eternal, what the other did was external. What the Spirit does is internal. It is with the work of the Spirit we are now concerned, with his work in the new birth, and particularly his sovereign operations in the new birth. The Father purposed our new birth, the Son has made possible by his travail the new birth, but it is the Spirit who effects the new birth, born of the Spirit. John 3 6 The new birth is solely the work of God the Spirit, and man has no part or lot in it. This from the very nature of the case. Birth altogether excludes the idea of any effort or work on the part of the one who is born. Personally, we have no more to do with our spiritual birth than we had with our natural birth. The new birth is a spiritual resurrection a passing from death unto life. John 5.24. And clearly, resurrection is altogether outside of man's province. No corpse can reanimate itself. Hence it is written, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. John 6.63 but the Spirit does not quicken everybody. Why? The usual answer returned to this question is because everybody does not trust in Christ. It is supposed that the Holy Spirit quickens only those who believe, but this is to put the cart before the horse. Faith is not the cause of the new birth, but the consequence of it. This ought not to need arguing. Faith, in God, is an exotic, something that is not native to the human heart. If faith were a natural product of the human heart, the exercise of a principle common to human nature, it would never have been written, All men have not faith. 2 Thessalonians two. Faith Is a spiritual grace, the fruit of the spiritual nature, and because the unregenerate are spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins, then it follows that faith from them is impossible, for a dead man cannot believe anything. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8 8. But they could if it were possible for the flesh to believe compare with this last quoted scripture hebrews eleven six but without faith it is impossible to please him can god be pleased or satisfied with anything which does not have its origin in himself that the work of the holy spirit precedes our believing is unequivocally established by 2 Thessalonians 2.13. God hath, from the beginning, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Note that sanctification of the Spirit comes before, and makes possible, belief of truth. What then is the sanctification of the Spirit? we answer, the new birth. In scripture, sanctification always means separation, separation for something and unto something or someone. Let us now amplify our assertion that the sanctification of the Spirit corresponds to the new birth and points to the positional effect of it. Here is a servant of God who preaches the gospel to a congregation in which are a hundred unsaved people. He brings before them the teaching of scripture concerning their ruined and lost condition. He speaks of God, his character and righteous demands. He tells of Christ meeting God's demands and dying the just for the unjust, and declares that though this man is now preached the forgiveness of sins, he closes by urging the lost to believe what God has said in his word and receive his son as their Lord and Savior. The meeting is over. The congregation disperses. Ninety-nine of the unsaved have refused to come to Christ that they might have life and go out into the night having no hope and without God in the world but the hundredth heard the word of life. The seed sown fell into ground which had been prepared by God. He believed the good news, and goes home rejoicing that his name is written in heaven. He has been born again, and just as a newly born babe in the natural world begins life by clinging instinctively in its helplessness to its mother, so this newborn soul has clung to christ just as we read the lord opened the heart of lydia that she attended unto the things which were spoken of paul acts sixteen fourteen so in the case supposed above the holy spirit quickened that one before he believed the gospel message here then is the sanctification of the Spirit. This one soul who has been born again has, by virtue of his new birth, been separated from the other ninety-nine. Those born again are, by the Spirit, set apart from those who are dead in trespasses and sins. A beautiful type of the operations of the Holy Spirit antecedent to the sinner's belief of the truth, is found in the first chapter of Genesis. We read in verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The original Hebrew here might be literally rendered thus, And the earth had become a desolate ruin, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In the beginning, the earth was not created in the condition described in verse 2. Between the first two verses of Genesis 1, some awful catastrophe had occurred, possibly the fall of Satan, and as the consequence, the earth had been blasted and blighted, and had become a desolate ruin, lying beneath a pall of darkness. Such also is the history of man. Today man is not in the condition in which he left the hands of his Creator. An awful catastrophe has happened, and now man is a desolate ruin, and in total darkness concerning spiritual things. Next, we read in Genesis 1 how God refashioned the ruined earth and created new beings to inhabit it. First we read, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. Next we are told, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The order is the same in the new creation. There is first the action of the Spirit and then the Word of God giving light. Before the Word found entrance into the scene of desolation and darkness, bringing with it the light, the Spirit of God moved. So it is in the new creation. The entrance of Thy Word giveth light, Psalms 119, 130, but before it can enter the darkened human heart the spirit of god must operate upon it footnote the priority contended for above is rather in order of nature than of time just as the effect must ever be preceded by the cause a blind man must have his eyes opened before he can see and yet there is no interval of time between the one and the other as soon as his eyes are opened HE SEES. SO A MAN MUST BE BORN AGAIN BEFORE HE CAN SEE THE KINGDOM OF GOD. JOHN three three. SEEING THE SON IS NECESSARY TO BELIEVING IN HIM. UNBELIEF IS ATTRIBUTED TO SPIRITUAL BLINDNESS. THOSE WHO BELIEVED NOT THE REPORT OF THE GOSPEL SAW NO BEAUTY IN CHRIST THAT THEY SHOULD DESIRE HIM. The work of the Spirit in quickening the one dead in sins precedes faith in Christ, just as cause ever precedes effect. But no sooner is the heart turned toward Christ by the Spirit, than the Savior is embraced by the sinner. End footnote. To return to Second 2 Thessalonians 2:13, 2, but. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath, from the beginning, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The order of thought here is most important and instructive. First, God's eternal choice. Second, the sanctification of the Spirit. Third, belief of the truth. Precisely the same order is found in 1 Peter 1-2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We take it that the obedience here is the obedience to the faith, Romans 1, 5, which appropriates the virtues of the sprinkled blood of the Lord Jesus. So then, before the obedience of faith in Hebrews 5, 9, there is the work of the Spirit setting us apart, and behind that is the election of God the Father. The ones sanctified of the Spirit, then, are they whom God hath from the beginning chosen to salvation, Second 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, First 1 Peter 1, 1.2. But it may be said, is not the present mission of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin? And we answer, it is not. The mission of the Spirit is threefold. To glorify Christ, to vivify the elect, to edify the saints. John sixteen eight through 11 does not describe the mission of the Spirit, but sets forth the significance of His presence here in the world. It treats not of his subjective work in sinners, showing them their need of Christ, by searching their consciences, and striking terror to their hearts. What we have there is entirely objective. To illustrate, suppose I saw a man hanging on the gallows. Of what would that convince me? Why, that he was a murderer. How would I thus be convinced? by reading the record of his trial? By hearing a confession from his own lips? No, but by the fact that he was hanging there. So the fact that the Holy Spirit is here furnishes proof of the world's guilt, of God's righteousness, and of the devil's judgment. The Holy Spirit ought not to be here at all, that is a startling statement but we make it deliberately christ is the one who ought to be here he was sent here by the father but the world did not want him would not have him hated him and cast him out and the presence of the spirit here instead evidences its guilt the coming of the spirit was a proof to demonstration of the resurrection ascension and glory of the lord jesus his presence on earth reverses the world's verdict showing that god has set aside the blasphemous judgment in the palace of israel's high priest and in the hall of the roman governor the reproof of the spirit abides and abides altogether irrespective of the world's reception or rejection of his testimony. Had our Lord been referring here to the gracious work which the Spirit would perform in those who should be brought to feel their need of him? He had said that the Spirit would convict men of their unrighteousness, their lack of righteousness. But this is not the thought here at all. The descent of the Spirit from heaven establishes God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. The proof of that is, Christ has gone to the Father. Had Christ been an impostor, as the religious world insisted when they cast him out, the Father had not received him. The fact that the Father did exalt him to his own right hand, demonstrates that he was innocent of the charges laid against him and the proof that the father has received him is the presence now of the holy spirit on earth for christ has sent him from the father john 16:7 the world was unrighteous in casting him out the father righteous in glorifying him and this is what the spirit's presence here establishes of judgment because the prince of this world is judged verse eleven this is the logical and inevitable climax the world is brought in guilty for their rejection of for their refusal to receive christ its condemnation is exhibited by the father's exaltation of the spurned one therefore nothing awaits the world and its prince but judgment the judgment of satan is already established by the spirit's presence here for christ through death set at not him who had the power of death that is the devil hebrews two fourteen When God's time comes for the Spirit to depart from the earth, then his sentence will be executed, both on the world and its prince. In the light of this unspeakably solemn passage, we need not be surprised to find Christ saying, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him no the world wants him not he condemns the world and when he is come he will reprove or better convict bring in guilty the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me of righteousness because i go to my father and ye see me no more of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. John sixteen eight through 11 Three things, then, the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth demonstrates to the world. First, it's sin, because the world refuses to believe on Christ. Second, God's righteousness in exalting to his own right hand the one cast out, and now no more seen by the world. Third, judgment because satan the world's prince is already judged though execution of his judgment is yet future thus the holy spirit's presence here displays things as they really are we repeat john sixteen eight through eleven makes no reference to the mission of the spirit of god in the world for during this dispensation the Spirit has no mission and ministry worldward. The Holy Spirit is sovereign in His operations, and His mission is confined to God's elect. They are the ones He comforts, seals, guides into all truth, shows things to come, etc. The work of the Spirit is necessary in order to the complete accomplishment of the Father's eternal purpose. Speaking hypothetically but reverently, be it said that if God had done nothing more than given Christ to die for sinners, not a single sinner would ever have been saved. In order for any sinner to see his need of a Saviour and be willing to receive the Saviour, he needs the work of the Holy Spirit upon and within him as imperatively required. Had God done nothing more than given Christ to die for sinners, and then sent forth his servants to proclaim salvation through Jesus Christ, thus leaving sinners entirely to themselves to accept or reject as they pleased, then every sinner would have rejected, because at heart every man hates God and is at enmity with him. Therefore, The work of the Holy Spirit was needed to bring the sinner to Christ, to overcome his innate opposition, and compel him to accept the provision God has made. We say compel the sinner, for this is precisely what the Holy Spirit does, has to do, and this leads us to consider at some length, though as briefly as possible, the parable of the marriage supper. In Luke fourteen sixteen, we read, A certain man made a great supper, and bade many. By comparing carefully what follows here with Matthew 22, 2-10, several important distinctions will be observed. We take it that these passages are two independent accounts of the same parable, differing in detail according to the distinctive purpose and design of the Holy Spirit in each gospel. Matthew's account, in harmony with the Spirit's presentation there of Christ as the King, says, A certain King made a marriage for his Son. Luke's account, where the Spirit presents Christ as the Son of Man, says, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. Matthew 22, three says, and sent forth his servants. Luke 14.17 says, and sent his servant. Now, what we wish particularly to call attention to is that although Matthew's account is servants, whereas in Luke it is always servant, the class of readers for whom we are writing are those that believe unreservedly in the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. And such will readily acknowledge there must be some reason for this change from the plural number in Matthew to a singular number in Luke. We believe the reason is a weighty one, and that attention to this variation reveals an important truth. We believe that the servants, in Matthew, speaking generally, are all who go forth preaching the gospel, but that the servant in Luke 14 is the Holy Spirit. For God the Son, in the days of his earthly ministry, was the servant of Jehovah. Isaiah 42 1. It will be observed that in Matthew 22, the servants are sent forth to do three things first, to call to the wedding verse three, second to tell those which are bidden, all things are ready, come unto the marriage, verse 4. Third, to bid to the marriage, verse 9. And these three are the things which those who minister the gospel today are now doing. In Luke 14, the servant is also sent forth to do three things. First, He is to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready, verse 17. Second, he is to bring in the poor, and the maimed, and the halt and the blind, verse 21. Third, he is to compel them to come in, verse 23. And the last two of these the Holy Spirit alone can do. In the above scripture, we see that the servant, the Holy Spirit, compels certain ones to come into the supper, and herein is seen his sovereignty, his omnipotency, his divine sufficiency. The clear implication from this word compel is that those whom the Holy Spirit does bring in are not willing of themselves to come this is exactly what we have sought to show in previous paragraphs by nature god's elect are children of wrath even as others ephesians two three and as such their hearts are at enmity with god but this enmity of theirs is overcome by the spirit and he compels them to come in is it not clear then that the reason why others are left outside is not only because they are unwilling to go in, but also because the Holy Spirit does not compel them to come in. Is it not manifest that the Holy Spirit is sovereign in the exercise of his power, that the wind bloweth where it pleaseth, so the Holy Spirit operates where he pleases? And now to sum up, We have sought to show the perfect consistency of God's ways, that each person in the Godhead acts in sympathy and harmony with the others. God the Father elected certain ones to salvation. God the Son died for the elect, and God the Spirit quickens the elect. Well, may we sing, Praise God, from whom all all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him, above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. End of chapter four, part three.